Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and we are back. The first episode of 2019, hopefully the first of many to come this year. And we are going to get off to a heck of a start today because I've got a good one for you guys. My guest today, in addition to being a very distinguished journalist and broadcaster, is also a guy who gets it. A man of refined cultural taste. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, the editor-in-chief of The Athletic DC, David Aldridge. David, how are you, man? Man, I am good, and I am honored to be on your show, man. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I well, it's an honor to have you on this show, and, and not just because of the admiration that I have for your uh, illustrious uh, career as a journalist and as a broadcaster, but what I have come to learn over the course of the past couple of years is that you are a 70s and 80s pop culture aficionado. Absolutely. <laughs> it's my sweet spot. You know, I mean, it's it's um, it's a lost decade, the 70s. I mean, so if you're a kid, I was, I'm 53, um, I was born in 65, so, you know, the mid to late 70s was my childhood. You know, I mean, that's, that's what I remember is um, that time when you had... And I, you try to explain it to your children now, you know, like you had to entertain yourself, you know? I mean, you, <laughs> That's true. You know, you, did, you didn't have, I mean, all the things that you take for granted now and that people take for granted now, I mean, none of that was available to us, right? So you had to kind of entertain yourself and you had to have an imagination, right? So, so when you, when you, so when I think about things like the evil Knievel set that every kid I knew had when we were growing up, you know, and, and things like you had to kind of create your own world, you know, and it was, it was phenomenally fun. Um, I had a great time and to have somebody that gets it and understands that time and understands what kind of the cultural icons were at that time, I just think it's, it's great. So I appreciate anybody that can bring that back to us. Well, thank you, and, and and I gotta tell you, I'm a little jealous because you are a few years older than me. I've I've gotten this reputation as the '70s guy, but I was born in seven. <laughs> I was born in '71, so okay. <laughs> so my, so my memories only kick in late '70s. But obviously, I've I've lived a uh, dementedly '70s obsessed life in some respects, and finally found an outlet for it. But you were kind of the perfect age, being being born in in, in '65. You're you're right. entering into it where basically your memories are starting right around the beginning of the decade, and and you're walking out of the decade, uh, you know, as a as a 15, 14, 15 year old kid. You you kind of yeah. got the full childhood experience there. Exactly, exactly. So there was a, you know, there's a great fondness for that time, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, I think the main, one of the main reasons is that you just, you know, you equate that with kind of not just like coming of age, but just kind of like, um, you know, a relatively secure time, right? I mean, it wasn't, you know, everybody has their own things that they have to go through in life, but you know, for me, I mean, I, I, my parents both worked and, you know, we had, we grew up middle class and it was, 
you know, you come home every night, right? I mean, you kind of knew what, what your deal was, and you had some, some sense of family and, and neighborhood and all of those things. And so, any again, any recollection of that time is, is for the most part, and I'll speak, I mean, just speaking for myself, it's, it's pretty positive. You know, I mean, I just... It was a good time to be a kid, you know. I mean, it was just—it was a good time to be a kid. You could you could do things. There wasn't too much out there that that was troublesome, and the things that were troublesome, you just stayed away from, right? It wasn't kind of in your face all the time, and uh, so it was it was a great time to grow up. But you know, certainly the kind of crude electronics that were in place <laughs> back then really make me laugh and smile. Yeah, I think that I, I think that what you're saying is true. It, it it's almost it's almost as though we we look back on it now with our our 21st uh, 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 century perspective, and you can see certain dangers now in retrospect that I don't think that we were particularly bothered with at the time. So, yeah. Not wearing seat belts. Not right. wearing helmets when we're out on our bikes and that kind of right, stuff. Right. We we didn't think twice about it at the time though. Right, right. Eating steak for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. I yeah. mean, just, this is stuff that you did and, and you didn't think about it. You know, I, I, I get, I, you know, you hate to sound like the, you know, old man shaking his fist at a cloud, but I mean, it was, you know, you could walk to the library. I used to walk to the library every Saturday morning, you know, and it was, you know, a 20 minute walk, but it was fine. You never felt like you had to have an escort with you, you know what I mean? So, <laughs> You know, you walk up, you get a book, you walk back. What's the big deal? You know, so um, it was just the kind of time where you could you could be in your head a little bit as a kid, and it wasn't necessarily viewed as something that needed to be treated, you know, chemically or pharmaceutically. It was just kind of like, hey, it's kind of an oddball. You know, I mean, it was okay. You know, so <laughs> um, and so yeah, I mean, all of those things kind of um, bring back those kind of memories where. There was, again, I felt a real sense of growing up. I grew up in the city in D.C., and, you know, you, everybody worked in my neighborhood. I mean, and you knew what your you knew what your friend's parents did for a living, right? Like my next-door neighbor, his mother worked at a, in a school. She was a cafeteria worker, and his father ran a McDonald's. You know, I just, you know, and the guy across the street ran a liquor store, and the guy down, and my, you know, my dad was a mailman. My mother was a registered nurse. You just knew what everybody did. And so there was just a sense that everybody kind of looked out for each other and you didn't, you know, you didn't cut through somebody's yard. You went around, the, you know, on the sidewalk is because out of respect, you know. And so everybody kind of at each other's back and, and looked out for each other a little bit. And it was just, it was just different than it is now. It's just a different time. Well, I, I always tell people that that I've got the best followers on Twitter, and I and I believe that the the wit and wisdom of my followers a, a lot of the time far surpasses uh, whatever it is that I'm coming up with. And and to me, you are uh, you are a prime example of that because I got to tell you, uh, th- some of your responses to the tweets <laughs> over the past couple of years, I mean, you you really just have me doubled over sometimes, cracking up. And it was pretty clear to me that I needed to get you on this podcast to to get your take on some of the the pressing uh, 70s and 80s questions that I have. So I I definitely want to get into talking about your career some as well, because I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. But but I want to start out with with some 70s and 80s things that I I really feel need the David Aldridge perspective today. (laughs) 
and, and before we get started, I, I, I just want to say, you know, I, I know that you and I are survivors of the Kool-Aid man's uh, reign of terror in the 70s, but I thought maybe we should take a moment uh, before we get started to uh, reflect on those who, who, who lost their homes or suffered uh, terrible property damage. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, you know, the Kool-Aid uh, man was was a terror. Come on, let's face it. He was a, <laughs> he was a, a destroyer of homes and, and rocker of worlds and uh, just uh, did not seem to care too much for, you know, boundaries. He seemed to kind of just go wherever he wanted to go. And if that meant, you know, breaking somebody's wall down, then he had to do it. So it was... Um, but that sweet taste kept bringing you back, you know? The first... That sweet taste of, of almost pure sugar just kept bringing you back. Yeah, the, the, the first... I got to think, like, the first, what, five, ten... Well, once you get past the shock that he's just barreled through the, the boundary of your property, right... <laughs> Once you get past that, once you've once you've washed down uh, a, a glass or two of, of that that sugar refreshment, at some at some point it sets in. Well, you know we've got a hell of a problem here. Yeah, uh, well we got to rebuild now. So. <laughs> but it wasn't the kids' problem anyway. So I guess no, I guess it's not that surprising that the kids didn't seem to be concerned. You know, mom and dad were going to take care of th- those insurance issues. Job. What's the big deal? <laughs> All right, so so I got to ask you, what were your what were your go to television shows grow, growing up as a child of the seventies? Oh wow, great question. Um, there were a few. I mean, I think. Uh, you know, being a uh, black kid growing up, you kind of always gravitated to, towards the black shows, like, you know, Good Times and Sanford and Son and What's Happening and all those, because you just saw so few of us on TV at the time. Yeah. So you gravitated toward it. But, you know, I, I watched all kinds of different things. I used to love The Odd Couple. That was like one of my favorite shows. Classic. You know, in, in fact, all of the, the ABC Friday night lineup. I mean, this is the thing. Nobody remembers when you used to have lineups, right? I mean, so you would have the Friday night would be ABC because you watched The Odd Couple and The Partridge Family and Love American Style. And, you know, so you would your whole night would be, and you only had three networks, so you had three channels. Well, we, you know, or if you were lucky, you had four or five, if you had an independent in your city. And so you would, so Friday night was ABC, and then Saturday night you'd watch CBS. So you'd watch uh, All in the Family, and then um, uh, the Bob Newhart show, and then Carol Burnett. So that's that's what you did. So you, your whole night was, was dedicated to one network, and that's what you stayed on. You didn't change it. So, um, so you watch shows like that, and then um, uh, I, I, I liked the Gary Marshall, you know, genre of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. I didn't love it. I watched it, but I didn't watch it with any great conviction, you know, because it was what was on. Well, see, um, yeah, exactly, so- exactly. I, I, because I had Nick Bakai, uh, the the comedian, uh, on, sure. on uh, a couple of years ago, and actually we were talking about Laverne and Shirley, oddly enough, mm-hmm. and we kind of made the same observation that you know you're talking about how we had three channels in those days, maybe four or five if you were fortunate, and I, I think that that led to sort of a communal shared experience because Absolutely. because even if you even if you didn't love Laverne and Shirley. It, you know, it was sort of pass fail. If it was good enough to watch, we watched it. And I kind of fell into that category as well. But I think that's part of the reason we look back on the 70s now and we share that frame of reference. I can make a big ragu joke and you're going to get it. Whereas, right. whereas today, it's wonderful that we have all the streaming and the vast array of choices. But 
you know your favorite television show of modern times you know, I may have never seen an episode and it's and it's not impossible to think that I might not have even heard of it so it's kind right. of like That's we've gained something but we've lost something as well absolutely I mean I think it, it it's it, the if I, I don't know the exact numbers but I'm still certain that there was an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies now this was before <laughs> my time this was in the 60s but there was an episode of the Beverly Hillbillies that's still like maybe top 10, top 15 all-time ranked and rated television show. And it's not because it was a great episode. It was because that was the only thing that was on television. <laughs> so everybody who was who had a television watched that. You yeah. Know? So, um, it's, so, it's true. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that sense of shared communal experience, like whether or not you liked MASH, we all watched it, right? So, I mean, um, so, you, so we all kind of talk the same language and that is very true and that is it's you know it's not better or worse it's just different is the way I, is the way I put it today I mean it's just we all kind of had the same frame of reference to go by and I think in a lot of ways that was good because it broke down a lot of barriers um, and today everybody kind of lives in their own world I mean you literally can create the world you want to live in you can do it in terms of the shows you watch or the, you know, the, the political channels you watch or the sports teams you follow. You can really create your own bubble. And, and it, it, I get that it, it makes you feel in some way secure and, and comfortable and safe. But I think the danger is if you never share an experience with anybody else, it, it's difficult to share any experience with anybody else, you know? Yeah. So that, it makes it hard for us to kind of come together on certain things. And that's, that's troubling to me. So even though the seventies were kind of weird and, you know, it's, it's cool to say that everybody hated disco, but trust me, they didn't in the seventies. We all kind of liked disco, (laughs) you know, it was kind of the music that we all had. We all listened to Casey and the sunshine band. So, so it was saccharine, but it was the stuff, but we all shared it together. So it, it, you know, it has a meaning that, that goes beyond the quality of the actual music that you were listening to. Well, I, I, I want to get into asking you about who some of your favorite athletes uh, of the 70s were. And I, and, and I know from your your Twitter uh, commentaries that, that, you, that you've made that we share at least one favorite athlete of the 70s, and, and that would be Ken Reeves. Um, I, I think that, uh, as, as you once noted uh, on Twitter, he, 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 was, he was known as the Gervin Stopper, uh, g- gritty, hard-nosed, uh, you know, sure, you know, George was going to get his 20 or 25, but he was going to have to work like hell for it. Uh, and and of course, you know, when he blew out the the, the ACL at Chicago Stadium, uh, still a day for me uh, that that I reflect back on. And you know, some people look back on the JFK assassination. I I, I look back on the on, on the ACL there. Um, the White Shadow uh, got got to be one of the iconic shows of the era. Am I am, am I wrong? No, not at all, not at all. And I think again, you know, the white shadow. The thing that made the white shadow great is that you had something for everybody, right? I mean, you had, you had, you know, it was a well-written show. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, besides that, you had people that sort of, kind of look like they might have played basketball at one point. You know, uh, you can tell they didn't really play, but they sort of could. You know, cool. It sort of looked like he could have played basketball. 
I had, you know, like Thorpe was my guy. Because I would have been, if I had any athletic ability, I would have been Thorpe. Kind of the cerebral point guard, you know. Not not a guy that could really cross you over athletically or dunk. But he knew the game well, and so he could get himself open. And if you left him open, maybe he hits a shot. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. That he would could, be me. Yeah, he could, he could run an offense, you know. Run an offense. He yeah. gets into your stuff, right? And so he had... So for people like me, you know, I would be a Thorpe guy. And then, you, you know, Coolidge was the athlete. He was a big, strong guy that could run the floor. So if you really thought you could play, you could relate to Coolidge. And then you had, you know, Salami and Goldstein, the guys that didn't really play, but they were fun guys. People liked having them around. You know, they, they would tell jokes and they were, you know, they were funny. And so every, so I thought, you know, if you like basketball, you would love the White Shadow. But even if you didn't like basketball and you just, just had friends, you know. I mean, so you could you could relate to the show that way. So it was just a, it was just a great show. Yeah, I mean, and again, I, we were we were teenagers then, so we related to a show about teenagers. And and, and Goldstein, not much of a player, but I'll, I I've always felt underrated on the shower harmonies. <laughs> exactly. You know, don't sleep on that aspect of what he brought to the uh, to the squad That's there. Absolutely right. Uh, yeah. You know, the '70s such a great era for for sports announcers and, and as a guy who has uh you know spent so many years in that in that profession who were the, who were the 70s broadcasters that had the greatest impact on you well the the one above and beyond and i'm totally serious about this now is our cosell cosell was and is to me an icon he is an a larger than life figure in terms of his ability, you know, he really was the first electronic, you know, sports journalist that really tried to do serious sports journalism, you know. And so that was someone that you could and I did appreciate on multiple levels because he had that, that you know, background as a lawyer. So he really looked at sports in a different way than most sports broadcasters would. Um but then also understood the the, the camp, the, the kind of over-the-top shtick that he did on Monday Night Football when he tried to make every Monday Night game the biggest thing that ever happened, ever. <laughs> that, is, that is so true. Now, f- first of all, I love Howard Cosell. Loved him then, love him now. Great, yeah. Greatest respect. So I'm, the, I, I am absolutely buying what you, what you're selling uh, with Howard. And it's funny that you say that because I will occasionally pull up an old Monday Night Football game on YouTube, throw it on the television, and let it play in the background while I'm, you know, doing, yeah. doing whatever work I have going on. And, and I was watching one last week, a bit of one, and it was, I want to say it was, it may have been '78 somewhere in that era, uh, era, and. Howard is doing the, the the pregame talking about how important it is and how this is really a must win game and he's given this game so you know so there's so much importance being attached to it and and literally it was like week 4 or week 5 you know and and I but but you know he he made you believe it. I mean heck he he made the battle of the network stars seem important absolutely I mean so that and so he got so he understood all of it. Like I think he had a 360 degree view of sports, um, and he was there for all of it. That's the amazing. That's the you know the thing that's really I think one of the reasons why he's so seared in my memory is that he was at every big event. You know, he did the World Series. He, he did the NBA Finals. You know, 
very few people remember, but he actually did. Um, you know, and he did Monday Night Football. So if Monday Night, if your team, and I was a Redskins fan when I was a kid, if your team was on Monday Night Football, it was the biggest thing ever, right? Yeah. And even and if they weren't doing, if they weren't playing that night, you just prayed to God they were in the halftime highlights. You know, like oh, you'd be mad yeah. if your team wasn't in the halftime oh, highlights every week. You know? The halftime highlights. If if people are younger than a certain age, and and I certainly right. do have followers who who don't remember all this stuff and are along for <laughs> along for the ride and. Some of the references they get, some they don't, but they still enjoy the site. If any of you guys are listening, and I know some of you are, the halftime highlights was that was appointment television. I, I, I remember, Absolutely. I remember negotiating with my mother when I was a kid. She would make me go to bed at halftime, and but it was very clear. I'm like, okay, mom, look, if that's what it is, that's what it is. But you gotta let me see the halftime highlights because right. that was that was the only fix. That we got in those days of uh, of seeing highlights, and it's sure. it's so hard to imagine that forty uh, plus years down the road. But we were we were starving for a glimpse of uh, of Dan Fouts in, in those exactly. days. Exactly, like we never saw the we never saw the Raiders play. They were never. I mean, when you know you would have, you would get one game. And it was always the Redskins, you know. So, so we would get the Redskins game, and then you'd go do your homework or something. You know? and that was it. Um, so we never saw the Raiders. We never saw the Chargers. We never saw the Broncos play. So when they were on the halftime highlights, it was just wow, <laughs> you know. And so, and then Cosell would sell it so amazingly, you know. So you still remember, like the phrase "Oakland Alameda County Coliseum" <laughs> means something to me, you know, like. You did the thing last week about Kenny Anderson, and I remember it like it was yesterday from Tiny Augustana College. You know, you just, you oh. just were like, "Wow, he must be amazing if he's on the halftime highlights." You know? Oh, and he, he, you know, that man right there. You know, it was I just see. oh, I get, I can feel the hair on my arm standing up now just thinking about his narration uh, yeah. of of yeah. those. Now, 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 a big part of being a, a sports fan in those days was uh, the, the the toys. Obviously, because we're sure. we're not getting the, the the social media and the television broadcast, so you, you made a lot of your own entertainment. And right. as you and I have dis- discussed uh, before the podcast, we were both pretty big fans of M- Mattel football and those oh, ki- yeah. those kinds of games. Now, oh, absolutely. Now, uh, it, you know, ha- ha- looking back on it, uh, it ha- how do you assess the the skills that you had as a Mattel uh, football uh, offensive? coordinator oh dude that was awesome i was awesome on on football one and football two but really football one i was like <laughs> i was uh you know i was you know air coriel i mean you know, <laughs> i was putting up you know 65 70 points a week you know I mean, <laughs> you know i could i probably if you gave me one of those now it would take me about two minutes and then i would figure out the the code again i would <laughs> You know, break it, and so no, I was I was really good on that. So that was one of my favorite go-to games of all time. I liked that a lot better than the baseball one. I had the baseball game, but the football one was the one that I really was good at. You know, um, and I really loved playing that one. Yeah, the 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 football game was the king, and the and and it had the two settings, right? You had Pro One and Pro Two. And, right. <laughs> and 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 I'm gonna you know and, I, and I've joked before you know if you wanted to be taken seriously you you, you had to be a pro two guy 
Exactly. You know, and I, and I got one of these. You know, they're making them again, and I got one for right. one, for one of my daughters for Christmas uh, last year, Christmas of 2017. And right. I, I, of course, I wound up playing it more than her. It's like the you know, it's the <laughs> the classic <laughs> buy a gift for your child that you know that you're going to get mileage out of tactic. And, right. Exactly. And I'm, you know, Pro Two was kind of kicking my butt there. It was harder than I remembered. <laughs> I thought I would. I thought I would just pick it up and be off to the races. And uh, the, the those Pro Two defenses uh, were a little bit stiffer than I remembered. Yeah, they bring they brought a little blitz action, you know. <laughs> they they did. You had, to, you had to leave somebody in to account for that blitzing linebacker, you know. So uh, yeah, no, those 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 games were five would spend hours hours doing. It. You know, change the. Nine volt battery, which was what it was back in the day. <laughs> it was. You know, I don't even know if they make nine volt batteries anymore. I guess they do, but um, yeah, no, those were those are great times because again, you had to entertain yourself. Well, and I, and you did. Yeah, is is I've jo- you know, I joke about this from time to time uh, on on Twitter, but. On more than one occasion, I I took a nine volt battery out of the smoke detector that we had in the hallway <laughs> of the house. I I'm sure I did that without parental uh, uh, approval. But when you're when you're desperate and you're you're ten years old and uh, you know you you just got to go where the nine volt battery is. And I always Absolutely. that was my in a, in case of emergency break break glass there. You know so. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you have to, yeah, and then you're reminded, you know, mom or dad, oh, by the way, I, I think we might need a new battery for the, <laughs> not for the smoke detector. I don't think it works. <laughs> Find an old dead battery and put it in there. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, like the guy, the, like the guys who were escaping from Alcatraz, you know, putting the, right. the doll in the bed or whatever. Nobody's the wiser. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so now, were you a game show guy? the seventies, the seventies oh, yes. oh, sure. is uh, the seventies and the eighties, but that oh, was sure. that was yeah, really yeah. the the sweet spot for for game shows. What were your what were your go to game shows? Well, I mean, I am proud to say that my all time favorite game show was the Gong Show. I mean, that's my <laughs> touchstone. That's what because <laughs> when I got home from school, I get home from school about I don't know three thirty three forty five. And then the gong show would come on at four. So as soon as you put your books down, you get yourself a sandwich and you watch Chuck Barris for half an hour. And it was hysterical, you know? And so, um, you, you know, so when Gene, Gene, the dancing machine died, I actually cried. I actually cried. <laughs> you know, um, cause that was, a, he was a cultural icon to me. You know, sure. I wish I had gotten a chance to meet him, you know? So, um, but yeah, I mean, so the gong show. You know, I, I did watch The Price is Right. I didn't watch it every day, you know, because I was in school most of the time The Price is Right was on. Um, but I would watch that show. Um, I would watch, they, there was a show called The Magnificent Marble Machine, which was a big pinball machine. I used to watch that. Uh, Password was a big one, which is why The Odd Couple was an all-time favorite of mine because they did several bits with Alan Ludden and Betty White. So, um, so yeah, I mean, those were all, all those shows. Uh, and uh, uh, Wink Martindale had, he had like 17 shows, but I think <laughs> yeah. one of them was, he had, I might be, I don't want to like cross-pollinate hosts with, with the wrong show, but he, Sale of the Century, was that him? I don't know. There was another, um, like, I, Jim, I know that was, I, he, 
Yeah, that was Jim Perry at one point, but oh, Jim Perry. Okay. but I'm not All sure right. who that. But, but Wink may have done it before him because some of these shows, yeah. that w- one guy would go and then they would, you know, it was like yeah. it was like managerial. You know, Jim Fergosi's out like and Yankee somebody, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> somebody yeah, else is and in. Then I, well, and then Pressure Lock in the '80s when I was a little older, I used to always watch Pressure Lock in the afternoon when I got home. So that was a that was a big one because um, you didn't want to get the whammy. You know, that was <laughs> big money, whammy no whammies. Down. Exactly, you didn't want that. So. I will watch those. So yeah, yeah, I watched a lot of game shows when I was growing up. So, so who were your athletes? I mean, as I said, I know the list starts with Ken Reeves, but but once you sure. get past that, who 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 were your who were your guys? So among the the actual non non dramatic <laughs> athletes, um, you know, I was I I would say probably um, you know, I was a, a big Ali guy, you know, because oh, yeah. of just again the, the drama. So so you know, and, and you always. I want to write books, you know, now that my, you know, now that I have a little more time than I used to. So one of the books I want to write, and I know the title is What Happened to Wide World of Sports? Because, again, that was something that everybody watched on Saturday afternoon, right? So you will watch Wide World of Sports. And so Ali and Cosell were like a vaudeville act, and they were on Wide World of Sports like every other week. So either he had a fight to hype or he had a fight to, uh, to summarize. Um, and so you would watch Ali, and that's how I got to know him because I couldn't go watch the pay per view. I couldn't pay, and nobody knows what's you know closed circuit TV and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. People stare at you blankly. So, but if Ali had a big fight, they would it would be live, and then like two or three weeks later, they would show it on White World of Sports, and it would be the first time that you would get to see it if you didn't watch it on closed circuit TV. So they would come in, and he would narrate the fight with Cosell, and they would talk about this round and what happened here. And so, you know, that was—he was like a guy that you would always watch. And I didn't know—I knew nothing about his politics then. I was a kid, you know. I just knew he was a great fighter, and and that was at the time when the heavyweight champion of the world meant something, you know. I mean, that was a big deal. That title had reverence and, and had had real meaning for for people. So. If you watched him, you, you you know you you shared who the heavyweight champion was. So I would say him, and then you know guys like Reggie Jackson was a big guy back then with the Yankees, and this kind of sense of the dramatic. I was a big, I loved the Cincinnati Reds back then, so I was a big big Red Machine guy. So Joe Morgan and Pete Rose were were guys that I that I liked watching. Walter Payton obviously was a guy that you were like in awe of uh, growing up. Um, and then, you know, I liked basketball. I, I guess I, I would say I didn't love it, you know, back then. Um, I, I watched it if it was on. But certainly, you know, when a guy like, you know, Julius Serving came into the NBA in the late 70s and they were on TV a lot in Philadelphia, he was somebody that, that you watched in awe because you just you didn't see anybody else that did what he could do above the rim. And he was just like a an amazing athlete. So those were... Those were some of the people. But then the great thing about the 70s is that, you know, kind of the kitsch sports were big. So a guy like Evil Knievel was a big deal. I mean, he really was a big deal. Huge, huge deal. Yeah. You know, so you watched him, on again, on Why World of Sports with Frank Gifford. You know, I mean, that was Gifford's beat, I guess, was Evil Knievel. (laughs) It was. He had football with Evil Knievel. You watched him watched him jump buses in London or where, or some amusement park or something you stopped what you were doing and you watched it it was a you know it was a big deal well yeah you thought he was, you thought th- this might be the day he dies 
I mean, right. it, it was uh, he really he really was out there. You didn't know what was going to happen, and he was right. you know you got the he was a the guy was a loose cannon, I think to say the yeah. least. So you you didn't know what to expect. It was it was must see television. Right, right. I mean, you know, for all see, there's there's certain types of people that I hold in different regard, and boxers are one of them, and a guy like Evil Knievel is another one because while he may have been a huckster and a you know, a showman and all that. At the end of the day, he did get on a motorcycle and jump over stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the proof, the proof's in the pudding at some point, right? Yeah, I mean, he did break stuff. You know, <laughs> trying to do what he did for a living. You know, so that sense of danger and, and you know, you know, will he crash or will he land? Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was something that you wanted to watch, and, and, and I certainly did. And so all the other sports and that, that kind of had currency in the 70s and you know that that probably don't as much today you know you were watch i didn't know anything about auto racing but you watched the indy 500 you know i remember watching the indy 500 with my mother you know i mean it was weird you know i mean you were watching and you and it wouldn't come on till sunday night you know you you could back in those days it was tape delayed they wouldn't show it live so you had to wander around all day and not hope that nobody told you what happened because you wanted to watch it on Sunday night on ABC. It was a big deal. I, and, and, I yeah. was, and I was never an auto racing fan by any stretch of the imagination, but if you say Rick Mears or Gordon John yeah. Cock or something like that, those right. names... Johnny Rutherford? Yeah, sure. Johnny Rutherford. Those names mean something to me. Those, yeah, watch those, it. Yeah. I, all right, I got one more 70s question, and then I, 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 want, I want to ask you a little bit about, about your career, because I don't, want to, I don't <laughs> want to bury that. But this is actually a quote from you. Uh, I don't know if you will remember this, but, but I'm going to quote it back to you, because the, the 70s had some just dreadful variety specials. This, this was a thing where you know, some of them were quite good, and then others you really had to question the the the, the concept, the execution, <laughs> and basically every uh, every aspect of it. And there was a Dorothy Hamill special from the <laughs> from the late seventies, and and uh, I made a tweet about it, poking fun at it, and you replied, and I this is just a little slice of genius, I think. So I'm gonna I'm gonna quote this back verbatim. I loved your tweet so much. Uh, you said you do realize that sometime in say February of '79, an associate producer at ABC, having worked nonstop the previous six weeks on nothing else, stuck his head in his boss's office and said, almost with an air of triumph, "We got Irwin Corey." <laughs> <laughs> and I think that right there just kind of captures what was happening with a lot of these variety shows and yet right. uh, and yet you and I were probably parked in front of our televisions watching half of these things anyway absolutely absolutely sure and and to this day if you ask me well what did what did professor Ern Corey do I would go I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what he did I don't know what like was he a comedian I, I'm not sure <laughs> you know he was just the guy that was on TV all the time you know so <laughs> Oh, you there know, was a there, there, and there were and there were dozens of people like that. There <laughs> were the like that was just you know, their their role basically. They they existed in the entertainment world just to fill a segment here and there on various right. programs. You, I don't know if it was you. Somebody for some reason got me on a Foster Brooks thing, and it may have been you. <laughs> I don't know, but 
And so I went back and you start looking at all these things, and Foster Brooks did the same act over and over and over and over again. It was his thing. He was a drunk guy. That's what he did. He had a lot of mileage. was fun. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, and you just wonder, wow, and that's, that was his act, was that he would pretend to be a drunk guy. You know? and, so, and everyone was delighted by it. He, he would, as though, as though no one... Yeah, as though no one had ever pretended to be drunk before. It was like showing the natives fire. You know, we were just, we were enthralled with this for some reason. Hey, do the drunk guy again. Right. Right. It's like like doing the got your nose trick with a with a five-year-old. You know, we were just like, this is marvelous. Oh, my God, yeah. So, I mean, you would, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a different time. But, yes, people like Irwin Corey were, were must-gets. You know, like you had to have Ted Lang. You got to get Ted Lang on the show, or we're not doing it. You know, so okay, we got Isaac. All right, great. yes. Oh, yes. I, there's a. I tweeted out a, a photo of Ted Lang on the cover of a racquetball magazine once, and it was like, and it was like, you know, our you know sales are down. What do we do? You know, and it's like, get me Isaac. Uh, we, we need a shot in the arm here. Uh, so. So I want to ask you about your career because, as I say, I've been been a fan of yours for a long time, and and, and the fine work uh, that you've done at ESPN and, and TNT and uh, uh, among others. And you're you're most known, understandably so, for for your work uh, on NBA telecasts. But you've right. covered everything from the Olympics to the NFL to Major League Baseball to pretty much pretty much every other major and, and mid-major sport uh, that you want to think of. Uh, what are your favorites uh, to, to cover? Oh, um, well, I, it's a good question. Um, I, I can pretty much, I mean, I can pretty much say I like everything. I mean, I'm not trying to cop out to the answer. Um, but there's something to be said for just about every sport. I mean, there's, there, you know, there's, there's, things that you really do like about at least I do that I find intriguing and entertaining and interesting about every sport um, I, I can't say that I would love to cover every baseball game in a 162 yeah, game season yeah. but I do but the playoffs are great you know <laughs> so I love covering the playoffs um, you know but there's something to be said for I think a, a big now, I didn't do a ton of college football, but I understand, having done enough of it, you know, a big a big matchup of top 10, top 20 schools in a, in a college town. I mean, you want to do it in a college town. I don't want to do it at a neutral site. You know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to cover Michigan, Ohio State. You know, I mean, and to know what that means to those people in those states, you know, and how special it is for them. So... I get it. I understand the, the significance of those games. Um, so things like that, you know, a great, uh, a great tennis match. You know, I, I covered a little bit of tennis, not a lot, but I covered enough of it. I, I saw Steffi Graf at her absolute best, you know, at the U.S. Open. And, you know, you just, it's amazing to watch somebody who's really great at what they do. Um, but yeah, basketball has, has always been the sport I kind of gravitate to that I have covered pretty thoroughly over the last 30 years. Um, so the thing that I love about basketball is is the improvisational nature of, of the game within structure. And that's what I always come back to is that 
it's five guys individually trying to play together because the talents that, that they have individually are phenomenal. I mean, and even more so today, you know, every player, even the worst team in the league has somebody who's really good on their team, you know, the mm-hmm. really good basketball player. But they have to play within the structure and the throw with four other guys. Otherwise, it doesn't work, you know. And so to watch them try to figure out how to do that, I'm always fascinated by it because you want to display the individual skill of a basketball player, but it has to happen within the structure of a team. Otherwise, it does not work. So that kind of push and pull is fascinating to me. Uh, and, And the teams that do it well are the ones that I think really capture people's imagination. I mean, you know, I was there, I was fortunate enough to be able to, I was just starting to cover the NBA when the Bulls came of age and Michael Jordan came of age, but it was this classic kind of conundrum. Well, individually, there's nobody who's better than Michael Jordan. He can, he can score on anybody, right? But he can't win a championship by himself. So how do you, how do you make that work? And so to watch that, Watch that team kind of figure it out. And then once they figured it out, they were unbeatable for eight years. You know what I mean? So, um, that, yeah. That was fascinating. I, what, um, well, you know, I, I would be interested in your take on the evolution of the game. Obviously, uh, you've been covering the game, as you said, for a, for a lengthy period of time. You have, you have seen a lot of stylistic changes happen in the game obviously in in recent years we've seen the the influence of of metrics and and analysis of what the best shot values are and certainly we're seeing more three-pointers than than ever and sort of the mid-range jump jump shot has has fallen out of favor and and so forth uh in terms of the uh, for, from an aesthetic entertainment standpoint, uh, not just an effectiveness standpoint, but as a fan sitting down with some popcorn to, to, to watch a game and just be entertained by it, how do you mm-hmm. how do you how do you compare today's brand of basketball to say the basketball that we saw? And, and obviously, the '90s were different than the '80s, and the '80s were different than right. the '70s. But how would you kind of stack them up relative to one another? Well, it's a completely different game, which is why the you know this this whole notion of trying to decide who the best player of all time was is, is ridiculous. And I keep you know I, I I don't I don't understand why people don't understand this. They literally are playing a different game than they played twenty years ago. It is not the same game. It's a completely different game. So you can't compare because the rules are different. You know the rules are different. I mean it, it's impossible to describe how less physical the game is today than it was in the the 80s and 90s. And because of that, everything is different, right? And so I I said this a few weeks ago, that if you're talking about scoring, just scoring, there's no question that the game today is the best it ever was. Because the three-pointer is the most important shot in the game, and if you can put a team together that has multiple people that can consistently make three-point shots, then you have a chance to basically outscore most teams. And you don't have to really play defense, but if you play some, you're going to win a ton of games, and that's what Golden State has proven. I mean, they've been a very good defensive team throughout this whole run, but because they're so potent offensively, 
it's almost impossible to beat them because you can't keep them from scoring. I mean, you just, it's really hard to stop them from scoring. Um, so from a scoring standpoint, the game's never been in better shape because of the rules in concert with the emphasis on the three-point shot. But in terms of the game of basketball, the actual game of basketball, that is five guys trying to figure out a way to get the guy open to shoot a shot that he can make. I think we have probably gone a little too far on three pointers, you know. Uh, yeah, because, I agree. You know, it's just because it's the only thing that matters is create is creating enough space so that someone can shoot a three pointer. That's really all that anybody cares about now, <laughs> you know. And so. If you have someone, you know, whether it's a James Harden or a Steph Curry or, or, or somebody that is great at creating space for someone else to shoot a three, then yeah, I mean, the game's in great shape today. But I am just of the notion that I think the three-pointer should certainly be part of a game. I, you can even argue it should be the, the biggest part of a game, and that that's what you should try to do. But I just remember and have too much respect for guys who made their living in the paint. I just, that's what I grew up with. And I really respect those guys. And, and so the notion and the idea that, that a man who is seven feet tall and 260 pounds has to shoot a three pointer to be relevant. It just, it just bothers me because I just, there's too many guys that gave too much to the game of basketball who didn't play that way. And and when you say that that they're dinosaurs and things like that, you really do a disservice to the sacrifice that they made to make the game what it is today, to create the atmosphere where people can play the game the way they play it today. And so, you know, I just wrote this the other day. Like, if you, if you know any NBA player who's over the age of 50, who's 6'8 or taller, I guarantee you one thing, they're limping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, read, I read that piece yeah you know so because they had to do battle inside and they banged up against each other for 10 12 years and they all need new hips and they all need new knees well it's all like uh it, it, right it's like uh it's like kareem in airplane right when he takes the kid right. and says look tell your old man to drive walton in the exactly. linear up and down the court for 48 minutes exactly yeah that's going to take a toll i just can't i just can't dismiss them with a wave of my hand saying, oh, that's nobody play. Uh, who cares about that? Nobody wants, nobody plays like that anymore. That's old man basketball. I just can't get with that because it was, it was a great game back then. And you can argue it's a great game now, but don't dismiss what happened before you just because you weren't there to see it. Well, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. Well, well, two questions for you. One it sounds like you and I, at least to, to some extent are in general agreement that maybe the three pointer is, Maybe it's it's a bit much right now. First first question is is are 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 we in the are we in a slim minority in having that opinion? I mean, do you think Adam Silver, the league, do you think they're happy with the direction that things are going from an entertainment perspective? Absolutely. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Absolutely, hundred percent. And they wanted this to happen, and that's why they put all these rules in over the last twenty years right. to get rid of basically all physical contact, you know? And so, um, yeah, they wanted to open the game up for, for the best players. Now, I don't think 
they had in mind, well, in 10 years, we're going to, everybody's going to be shooting threes. I think that is what, that's kind of the next evolutionary step because, to your point, the analytics community kind of has taken over in the NBA. And, you know, three, three is more than two. Yes, we all understand that. All right, right. Um, and, and Clay, Clay Thompson, as, as we tape this, Clay Thompson just a few nights ago put up 43 points and, and dribbled the ball four times. Right. Um, do, do you have do, I mean, do you have any problem with that, or is or is this just me being the guy that's looking at a cloud in the sky to to gripe? Yeah, to? I mean, I look again. I get it. It's kind of the. It's kind of the natural result of a game where the emphasis is on shooting three-pointers. And so naturally, someone as gifted as Clay Thompson is shooting, you know, is going to be able to impact the game. And he has a particularly unique gift that he can catch and shoot. I mean, right. that's just something that that he has, you know, both incredible God-given ability and has worked extremely hard to perfect. Um, that he can just catch a basketball and shoot it, and it goes in. <laughs> and everybody can't do it as well as he can do it. Um, and so someone like that, in a system like Golden State's, with the rules the way they are, can have a night like that. And and I don't begrudge him that. Um, and I don't begrudge Steph Curry, you know, who has, I think, changed the game more than any single player in the last 15 years with his ability to stretch the floor past what anybody thought was possible. I mean, nobody thought shooting a 30-foot shot was something that you just did in a game. <laughs> right. <laughs> that wasn't like a normal thing to do, right? I, right. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was covering the Bullets, they were the Bullets then, now they're the Wizards. I was, I was the beat writer on the Bullets, and I covered a game when they played in Chicago, and it was just one of those nights Michael Jordan didn't take a lot of threes in his career. It just wasn't part of the game. It was something you did occasionally, right? And so on this particular night, for whatever reason, he made like four or five threes. And I remember talking to Daryl Walker, who was guarding him that night, and he literally said, what do you want me to do? He was shooting from 25 feet out. And <laughs> in those days, you would go, okay, I understand what you're saying. I get yeah. it. I get it. He was literally so far out, you wouldn't even think about guarding him out there. Right. right? And so... And and he was right, and you would go, yeah, I get it, I know what you're saying. Um, and but today, I mean, Steph Curry has changed the entire geometry of the game of basketball. He's changed the the whole way people play because of his ability to shoot from so far out and make shots consistently. You literally, there's no defense for it. There yeah. isn't a defense for that. Un <laughs> unthinkable when we were kids, unless somebody was just getting one off at the end of a quarter <laughs> or yeah, something, exactly. you know? Yeah. Exactly. And so that's changed the game of basketball. And so um, that's, um, so a guy like Clay Thompson can have a night where he dribbles four times and scores 40 points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because that's, those shots are available to you now. And they are, and you are expected to take them. You are expected to shoot fifteen, twenty threes a night now. So I, I got to ask you about the uh, about the TNT years uh, just a little yeah. bit. You, you had a you had a very a very nice tenure there, and I, I've always felt that 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 studio show with with Barkley and, and Ernie Johnson and Ken, Kenny Smith, Shaq, mm -hmm. one of the best studio shows, if not the best studio show uh, ever. What was it like? What was it like uh, working with those guys and interacting with those guys through the years? 
It was it was fantastic. I you know I worked. I was I've been fortunate enough to work. I've only had three jobs. You know, since I was 22 years old, I worked worked at the Washington Post for nine years, and it was great. I worked at ESPN for eight years, and it was fine. It wasn't great, but it was fine. And I worked at Turner for 14 years, and it was the it's the best place I ever worked. I mean, it's the best job I ever had. Um, I loved working there. Uh, I loved the people there. I loved the environment there. And you know, you come to really love your coworkers. Um, and they were phenomenal people to work with. And I enjoyed every day I was there. Um, and working with Ernie, working with those guys was not like working. You didn't feel like you were working. You just felt like you were at a bar talking with some people about the, about sports, you know, and they were funny guys. And that was, it was great. I mean, it just, you know, Charles is sweet, generous. There's only one of them. There's nobody like him. There's nobody. He is, I've never met in 30 years of this business. I've never met someone who is a legit superstar athlete. He wasn't just okay at what he did. He was a superstar at what he did. He was one of the best, ever at what he did who allows you to make fun of him and laugh at him like Charles does and that's why the show works that's why the show works he and Ernie are why the show works because Ernie is the most is the best studio host of all time he's just the best he's the best ever at it and Charles lets you make fun of him I've been around so many star athletes who just have the worst sense of humor ever. Like you could not even begin to realize what a stick up their butts that they have (laughs) about themselves. And Chuck is just not like that. Chuck is still a kid from Leeds, Alabama. And so he allows them to make fun of him. And I can't tell you how that just makes the whole show work. If he was like an arrogant, you can't make fun of me. I'm a, I'm a top 50 player of all time. The show wouldn't work. Yeah. You know? Well, it's in, and it's endearing. I think it's part of the reason that we that so so many of us love Barkley. You know, I was yeah. I was doing a I was doing a TV spot a couple of weeks ago, and the and the guy asked me, you know, who who's who would be your dream podcast guest, and and I said Charles Barkley, because. Yeah. Uh, you know, the guy, you know, I, I'm sure the, at least it seems to me that the guy we see on television is the guy that, the guy that you would meet in real life. At least that's how, Absolutely. at least that's how it feels as a viewer. He's the exact same guy. He's the exact same guy. And I have been in so many hotel bars with Chuck, cause you know, when you get to the playoffs, they, everybody travels. So we all do, we all wind up in the, you know, we stay in the same hotel and, I've been in so many hotel bars with Chuck over the years where people can't believe how nice he is. Like, you know, he, he meets, he loves people. He really does love people. So there was this incredibly wonderful, warm story you may have heard of and listened to on NPR and I, about how Charles became friends with this professor from Iowa. Just a guy. Nobody, nobody that anybody would have in Charles's world would have known. He was just a guy he met in a bar one night, <laughs> and, <laughs> and they became really good friends over the course of the last ten years. And to the point where, when when Charles's mom died, and and I was there, we went to we went to Leeds for the funeral. Um, this guy was there. 
it was just his friend Lynn. You know, this is the guy that he met in the bar. Yeah, was, uh, yeah. And that's that's who Chuck is. Like he he really likes people, and so he doesn't big time you about anything, and and can very happily have a really close relationship with a guy he met in the bar. You know, yeah, that says it all, right? I mean, you know, and it, yeah. It, yeah, and, and that's who he is. Well, David, I want to ask you about what you've got going on now, because as, as I said at the top, you are the editor-in-chief of The Athletic DC, and I'm an athletic subscriber. I, I read a lot of your stuff. It's the, the site itself is terrific. The stuff that you're doing is, is, is equally terrific. Tell me about the decision to, to go in this direction and the things that are happening with The Athletic. Well, it, it was very difficult um, because, as I said, I loved working at Turner. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, I was not at all unhappy <laughs> working there. Uh, so I would have happily continued working there. But, you know, I, there were a, a few things that when you're, when you're in your 50s, you think differently than when you're in your 40s, than when you're in your 30s, than when you're in your 20s, right? So, mm-hmm. um you know, uh, my wife and I have two kids. Uh, they're 14 and 11. So my two boys and our older son had just started high school. Um, and so, you know, when my contract was up with Turner at the end of, of this, or the end of 2018, um, you know, the expectation was I thought I was going to renew and resign there and keep working there. But, you know, I started to think about it and started to think about the fact that, well, if I sign another contract, and usually, you know, on TV you sign either a three-year or a four-year or a five-year contract with whoever you're working for, um, that takes me through the end of basically his high school. And so after that, he's going to be gone, okay? He's going off to college, wherever it is, um, and I won't see him. And chances are, when he's done with college, He's probably not going to live with us anymore. So, you know, so, you know, in terms of time with your kids, like you, this was it. You know, there's no, there's no more time. You know, if, if you sign this deal with Turner, you're not going to see your son much anymore. Period. So, um, that was one thing, uh, as, as well as our younger son. Um, and the travel was getting really hard. Uh, being on the road, being on planes. Um, when I was first starting out in the late 80s, you know, air travel was romantic and it was exciting and it was thrilling to fly out to the West Coast and see L.A. and see San Francisco and see the Pacific Northwest. You'd never seen it before. You know, the 50th time you go, it's not as exciting. <laughs> you know, so, uh, not quite as much of a thrill. Um, so, you know, it was getting harder. Uh, to, to constantly be on planes and be in hotels and that sort of thing. And, you know, time with your family is fleeting. You know, time on earth is fleeting. So um, I started to say, you know what? You know, you've been gone a long time. Um, and, you you know, I, I would like to kind of have more control over my life. You know, um, the idea that, Okay, there's a game in San Antonio. You have to go to San Antonio to cover it. You can't can't stay here and cover it. You know, um, it, it started to weigh on me. So, you know, and you have a schedule, and they say you're in San Antonio next week. You got to go, right? So, I wanted a schedule where I had a little more say in where I go. Um, so, if I do decide 
I want to go to San Antonio for something. I will, but if I don't, I won't. You know, so so that was it. And then and then also the idea of writing more frequently. I mean, I'm always considered myself a writer. I love words. I love writing. It's kind of who I am. Um, and the notion and the idea that I could get to write more frequently and write about different things really appealed to me. And the chance to kind of be in in charge and have a lot more say about what stories get written and who writes them. I mean, all of that kind of all appealed to me. And I and I was and the serendipitous thing is that you know this was Washington was kind of the last major city that the athletic hadn't established itself in. And so the fact that they needed somebody to run it, and then and I wanted to be home more and. I wanted to write more. It was all, everything started pointing to this and everything started pointing to taking this job. Like you really, you really are not, you're going to hate yourself if you don't take this job. <laughs> you know, you're going to be in Portland and you're going to really be angry with yourself. You know? so, um, so I, so I said, you know what? I got to do this. I got to do this. Right. And it's been great. And it's been everything I thought it would be. And, um, I'm really excited. I'm really happy. And I miss the people I worked with at Turner because you get to know them really well, and I miss them. I'm, I don't miss traveling, but I miss them. I miss the guys, and I miss the women <laughs> that, that worked at Turner. Um, they were just a great group of people to work with, and it made it, they made it really fun to be there and really exciting to be there. And so I miss them. But the, the games and the travel, I don't miss at all. All right. Before I let you go, I, I got to ask you while it's while it's still timely, what's going to happen with Bryce Harper? What what what's your sense? Wow. Well, I must tell you, um, as we tape this, as they used to say, uh, <laughs> event, events may overtake us, as they used to say on the Tonight Show. Yeah. Yes. The indeed, indeed, they may. Uh, indeed, they may. Right. Um, but right now, I mean, I tend to think he's probably coming back to the Nationals. I mean. For someone as, as you know, good as Bryce Harper is and as unique as his situation is, being 26 years old and being an unrestricted free agent, that just doesn't happen very often in baseball. Um, you would think if he had the deal that he wanted with the team he wanted to play for, he would have signed it by now, you would think, you know? Mm -hmm. um, because I don't think, I mean, I can't imagine that people are negotiating on this, right? I mean... Kind of go in and say, here's our offer, and this is what we can give you. You know, take it or leave it. Um, and so I would think that it, that by now someone would have made the offer that ends the negotiation, that ends the discussion, and he would just say, because Scott Boris has a number in mind, I'm sure, and once someone gives you that number, I think you would say, okay, well, we're signing there, right? So the fact that he hasn't done that yet, leads me to believe that that hasn't come up and so as long as the Nationals have offered him something and by all accounts they've offered him a pretty substantial amount of money it's not embarrassing by any stretch of the imagination um, and he again by all accounts everything that I have read and heard from Bryce Oper over the years says that he likes playing in Washington he likes playing for the Nationals um, and as long as they continue to build a team that's good enough to contend and has a chance to to win a World Series, he would be happy staying. I think probably he's going to resign here now because I just have the sense, and I don't know Bryce personally at all, 
but I know Philadelphia a little bit because I worked there for four years at the Inquirer, and I know the city, and I know how they are about their athletes, and there's a certain type of player, there's certain guys that they love in Philly for different reasons, but the main reason is that they are viewed as real kind of blue-collar, hard-working, day-in, day-out guys. It's not that they don't love superstars. They do, but they really love the guys that they view as blue-collar guys. And so there's there's a reason why they loved a guy like Brian Dawkins and Brian Westbrook um, more than they loved Donovan McNabb. You know, there's a reason they loved Allen Iverson uh, there. Right. Pete, Pete Rose, guys, for that matter, also. That's why they loved Pete Rose there. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they like guys that show up every day <laughs> and play hard. And um, not that Bryce doesn't play hard, but Bryce, I, I, I'm not... I'm not saying he's wrong to do it but sometimes Bryce doesn't run out every grounder okay you know like he's not playing with his hair on fire all the time you know and some of it is self-preservation it's a long season yeah and the hair that's not on fire is 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 very nice hair also which sort of contributes to you know rightly or wrongly it contributes to a certain perception with some fans exactly right that's right and Bryce is not a guy that puts up like monster numbers now his numbers are really good but he doesn't put up monster numbers all the time. And so I just wonder what happens when Bryce is in a slump for a month, you know, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. not going to go well for him there, you know. No. I, know that, I know that media and I know that fan base. It's not going to be good. So I just wonder, and I'm Bryce a pretty smart guy. And if I know that, I'm sure he knows that. So I just wonder, do you really want to be in Philadelphia <laughs> when it goes bad? Yeah. It's baseball. It's going to go bad at some point. You know, I mean, you're going to be in a slump. So that's what I, I just wonder about that. Now they're building a really good team there, and they have a chance to win, and that may be more important to him than anything else. Um, but just temperamentally, I'm not sure Philly is a match for him. All right, well, we're going to follow this and see what happens. And if I'm, if I'm and I'll, and I'll sign a twenty-seven year deal. <laughs> if I'm, if, listen, if I'm late, if I'm late getting this up, don't worry, I've got your back. I'll just edit it out if you're wrong. So, <laughs> there you go. So no, no worries. Well, he's the editor in chief of the Athletic DC. You can read his most excellent uh, musings on uh, the Athletic. You can follow him uh, on Twitter. It's David Aldridge DC, and uh, you, you got to be looking out for his wit and wisdom on all things 70s and 80s because that's uh that may be my my favorite thing that that you offer up uh D- david aldridge thank you so much for being on the podcast uh what a blast oh man thank you i mean i i'm, I'm serious i mean it's what what you do really is is a service <laughs> it's a public <laughs> service for those of us of a certain age who remember what what it was like being a kid uh, back in the seventies and, and the eighties, and it was it's it's very meaningful, and that's why it's gone on the way it has because there's a lot of people who remember just what it was like then, and it was it was just different, and it was wonderful. And thank you for bringing those memories back for us. Oh, what fun that was! You know, I think I could have David on this show about every other episode and never get tired of talking about the White Shadow with him. Uh, what a great guy and a very funny guy as well. And again, my thanks to David for being my guest today. 
Join me next time, which will not be a very long wait, because we're going to come out of the gate strong here in 2019 and hopefully have a lot of episodes for you. Uh, right around the corner, my next guest is going to be Rob Nyer. His latest book is Powerball, and it actually just won the Casey Award as the best baseball book of 2018. And I've read it, and I can tell you, a very deserving selection, a great book, and I can't wait to have an in-depth conversation with Rob Nyer next time about his Casey Award-winning Powerball. So in the meantime, don't forget about me. Don't forget about the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I know sometimes we don't post them frequently enough, so never miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast.